Hello and welcome back to the Leaders in EDI podcast brought to you by Meta. In this series, we shine a light on the progress being made and the challenges being faced in EDI across sport and other industries. I'm Jade Amies, I'm the producer of this podcast series. And I'm Giovanna Dega, lead on the Leaders Meet Diversity series. What you're listening to is episode one of the first of three seasons that we will deliver to you this year, this one about the stages of delivering an EDI strategy. More on the season and episode in the moment, but if you missed your monthly dose of EDI going on, we will continue to give you a monthly roundup of EDI news and views in the new Spotlight on EDI segment in Leaders monthly live broadcast, Leaders Live, produced in partnership with IMG. If you missed the last one, you can check the archive for the podcast version of the last two episodes or watch the latest edition by clicking on the link in the description. Tune in for the next one on Thursday, the 13th of April at 3pm GMT. Updates will be posted on the Leaders in Sport LinkedIn page. If we'd like a chance to reconnect in person, we will also be hosting a pop-up event to mark International Women's Day on the 30th of March. Confirmed speakers include Hugo Monet, Victoria Roche and Kike Oniwinde Oguru. We'd love to see you there, so for more information, please click the link in the description. Now, back to the podcast. We've enlisted three EDI leaders to guide you through the stages of how to build, execute, monitor and evaluate an EDI strategy to make real, tangible impact. First, we have Chris Parios, consultant, advisor, charity trustee and non-executive director, who currently works with many different organisations, included but not limited to the FA, the Premier League and Kick It Out. We also spoke to Kate Aldridge, EDI Director at the England and Wales Cricket Board. Kate began as Strategy and Insight Manager at the ECB in May 2019, before rising to Head of ESG Strategy and eventually to EDI Director in October 2022, just over a year on from the immediate fallout from Azim Rafiq's powerful statements against the Yorkshire County Cricket Club. Last, but certainly not least, we spoke to Rishi Jane, Senior Manager, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion at Liverpool Football Club. More than 15 years experience as an EDI leader, Rishi leads the club's EDI work as part of its Reds Together strategy, which encompasses all equality, diversity and inclusion activities, driving its ambition to be the most inclusive football club on and off the pitch. In this episode, we will focus on that first stage of building an EDI strategy, the planning and inception. What exactly is a strategy? Why do you need one? How do you identify the need for one and how do you present your case and set realistic targets? We answer all of these questions and more with the insight of our fantastic experts. Let's get to it. So if you could just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your organisation and the work that you're doing in the EDI sector. Yeah, of course. So I am the Senior Manager for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion at Liverpool Football Club. Um, so obviously Liverpool Football Club, one of the biggest, if not the biggest football club in the world. I can get away with saying that. Um, one of the biggest brands in the world. My role is very much to to lead the club's work internally and externally around EDI, and i um, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. So internally that looks like people, culture, inclusion networks, really very much how we embed diverse inclusion into everything that we do. Externally, it is focused on how we as a football club can take on and assume our responsibility to advocate and champion for important topics, um, both within our supporter base and wider society for our people, and obviously continually campaign and support for equality in football and wider society. 
So I'm the interim EDI director at the England Wales Cricket Board. Um, And so the ECB is the national governing body for cricket, which means we're responsible for developing and supporting all areas of the game from recreational cricket through to our elite England teams and all the coaches and volunteers and supporting fans as well. So my specific role as EDI director is about driving positive change both within the ECB but also within our network of 50 to 60 cricket organisations across England Wales with the goal of cricket becoming the most inclusive sport. So my, we've got a small team who work with people across the game to design and deliver EDI plans. So uh, examples of those, um, we have like targeted action plans um, in the EDI space as part of our core just organisational cricket strategy, which things like our Transform Women and Girls Cricket Action Plan, uh, which we've made a lot of progress on in the last three years. And then we also have EDI specific action plans. So Over the past year, we've been delivering on what we've called our game-wide commitments around tackling discrimination within the game. And those plans all kind of come together to support our overall strategy for cricket. Yeah. What about you, Chris? You've done so much work in this space, not even just in sport, but in EDI across multiple different industries and organisations. Matt, I was obviously having a think about this. I was, you know, I've just driven an hour and a half, so I had some time to think. And actually, I was thinking to myself, okay, when did I sort of first start kind of caring about this space, I suppose? And I I think what I realised is that I've always been an activist. And I mean that in the sort of broadest sense, to the sense that as a kid, I was like constantly like on one campaign or another to my parents. So I've constantly been agitating. The thing that's underpinned all of that is a sense of social justice. And I guess my first campaign, if you like, is it was a really cold winter and in my North London comprehensive, girls weren't allowed to wear trousers. I can't confirm the cold part if it's, yeah. not, if it's, if it's North London. <laughs> yeah. And that didn't seem right to me. It's like we were freezing in like our tights and skirts. Um, and then, you know, all the boys had like trousers and maybe long socks on or whatever. So I started a petition. I think I was 14, 13 or 14. I started a petition and I'm very pleased to confirm that uh, we won. We were allowed to wear trousers and girls still wear trousers in that North London comprehensive. So even though I spent nearly 20 years running a business, it's since then, since I left that job, where I've been able to be a consultant, advisor, trustee, um, non-executive director, etc. Because I've gone for more, like I work for myself now, and I try to find ways for my work to be sort of values and mission driven where it can, and then having space to do a lot of other things. So I think I'm on like five or six boards. My partner now says that if I was going to take, if I take anything else on, I have to drop something. I'm not allowed another one. But I always use the analogy that people use around stuff is like, I don't have children, but you know, I imagine if you have one child or you have five children, you love all your children, right? You don't go, I like that one more. That one came first. That one, although I'm the first, I'm the firstborn. So I like Well, they to think always that. say they haven't got favourites, but hey, we, 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 we look to parents. But, <laughs> but, you know, you find time for your children. So I kind of feel like I find time for the things that I care about. And Kate, how did you get into this sector? I know that you didn't originally have a sports background. So I've uh, I've had what what's I think termed a squiggly career. I've cared passionately about fairness and about equality for, for ever since I was a kid. One of my core values is around fairness, and it, it matters a lot to me. So I've actually come into EDI from a 
maths and science background. So, so I studied that at university. I then went into uh, management consulting where I sort of did strategy and operations work. And my route into EDI has been much more through the strategy and data side, which I think is a slightly different path. Everyone comes in different ways, but a lot of people come through an HR background. Some people might come through a community engagement background, but I've really come from this strategy data side. Um, you chose the right person to speak to then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, this is an ideal topic for me. This is my wheelhouse where I have lots of opinions. Um, it's an area where when I wasn't working explicitly in an EDI team, I got involved. I set up a lot of mentoring programs over the years. So looking at how, so being sort of woman in STEM, so woman in science, you're really alone and isolated. So sort of setting up mentoring programs and getting involved in that work. And then as you move into the business world, again, getting involved in whether it's employee networks or employee resource groups and kind of building up my knowledge through reading books, going to events, doing sort of online courses. And then as I've moved into cricket and moved into sport to then move into a really dedicated EDI role where I bring those skills together. There's a bit less of a formal career path, I think, into EDI at the moment. It's not most people working in it won't have gone and studied a degree in it to then come into the work. So everyone has really different paths in. But the background that I bring into it and the skill set that I bring is that strategic approach combined with data um, and then surround myself with people who might have some of more of the community engagement experience or some of the, who are potentially have you know more HR expertise than I will and kind of you build a team around all of those different skill sets I'm just thinking you went from STEM to business to sport it's like changing the EDI space one male dominated (laughs) there's so many overlaps though there's so many overlaps but if I could go back now 10-15 years and talk to myself when I was younger doing physics and feeling really out of place and like I didn't belong and there's so many parallels between how women might feel in sport and how women feel in STEM. And it's, yeah, as you say, they're just different, predominantly male dominated industries. They are changing and they are getting better. But yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, I imagine. Um, What about you, Rishi? So I'm almost at my 20th year of ED&I and football. I suppose what really drew me to it was my, my background was that I started working at LFC at the age of 14 as a volunteer. Um, which was great, really enjoyed it. So that was coaching with the foundation, sort of grassroots work. And as I got older, I started to learn a bit more about myself and be more sort of aware of my own background. I was like, actually, the inclusion work is something that's really important to me. Um, so after university, I um, was lucky enough to sort of have the opportunity to apply for a full-time job, and that was at Social Inclusion Officer, if I remember rightly, and that's where the, fir- the club first really asked me to look at um, an EDI framework and that was I was like right this is me like coaching was it was fantastic and I really enjoyed that engagement with community groups and diverse community groups at that but actually that was where I felt like I can really work on and engage with the internal work of the organization to create a legacy and an impact and actually my career has gone on and always been focused on and around that um, so obviously when I first left LFC um, after about nine and a half years went to work a kicker out then went to Man United and very fortunate to find myself back at LFC now for nearly two years. That has always been the very forefront of my thinking is how does my work, whether it's on a global strategic level or whether it is working with our employees or work or supporting our foundation team, how can that actually affect the local communities and the national international communities that we operate within? 
The word strategy, um, by definition, it's a combination of actions which lead to a long-term change. What do you view strategy as when we look at equality, diversity, inclusion? Well, it's interesting that you say it's a set of actions because I... I'm not sure I agree mm. because I think what it's a great you, start because <laughs> <laughs> actually I think if you're looking at what a strategy is it's like it's a set of like guiding principles and when you sort of and then you have to like communicate them and work out how you're gonna adopt them in your business yeah um and it's about you know, you've got to how you kind of guide people through an organisation to make decisions, allocate resources, etc. And I think the, the the thing that you know, and it gives you that roadmap, if you like, of um, those guiding principles or rules to define the actions of those people. Now, I think every good strategy has got a strategic plan underpinning it, mm. which is where the actions come in. But I can have a strategy and no strategic plan, and but if I have a strategic plan without an overarching strategy, I think that's where you can where you can go wrong because it's like one of the things that I'll um I'll always say is that it's something so you can have like what's that DNA so if you say like if you look at um the FA's latest strategic plan for example like six I think game changing objectives or something they talked about and one of them is a game free from discrimination now so lofty ambition it, what it means is you know, if I was in an executive in the FA, which I'm not, I'm sort of, you know, on the outside, sort of being a, a, a kind of a critical friend, if you like, sort of on the inside, but being a critical friend. I would like every single decision I made, there's six things here, win a major tournament, serve 2 million plus people through a transformed digital platform, ensure, ensure equal opportunities for every girl, et cetera. Every, and then again, free from discrimination, a couple of others. Every single decision you'll make, every penny you allocate, is it doing something with all of those? And guess what? Because there's six of them, mm -hmm. if you're saying, oh, like, you know, we've got six million pounds and five million pounds on one thing and the other million is from the other, it's like, okay, well, is that the right thing to do? If we've got six strategic objectives that we're putting on a line together, it's like, is every decision you're making to fulfill that strategy? And it's it's wild sometimes if you ask a business that, because as well as doing work in this space, I actually, I work with businesses on, on all sorts of things. I ran a business consultancy for 20 years. And sometimes just trying to get to the root of what's up, what an issue is, if, some, if, you know, if I've got a client asking me to help with something, asking just that question. Okay, so one of your core strategic objectives is this. So you've done this thing over here. You know, have you asked yourself every single time you make a decision, will this further this? So say for the Women's Equality Party, a couple of years ago, we were like, actually, the thing we need to do is drive membership. You know, that's got to be our core focus this year. So I'm on the board there. I'm not an executive. However, I look at this thing and I go, okay, we've done this brilliant campaign. How many members did you acquire from it? Well, none, but we did this really good thing over here, which was great. But if the strategic focus is we have to acquire members, you better tell me how many members you acquire, or at least what you did to acquire members via doing that particular campaign. Sometimes things don't work and that's fine. But if you're like, you didn't go into it going, it's a, it's a membership acquisition process, then you're not fulfilling your strategic objective. So I guess from a strategy perspective, that's where I'm at. It's like, make it something that's the DNA of your business. It doesn't have to be forever. It could be on a, on a one-year cycle, three-year cycle, a five-year cycle. I think if you've got a strategy that's five years, 
I'd hope that you would spend some time like looking at it in that time because I think in five years particularly in the in the climate we're in now it's too long things change things move a lot. Kate what would your answer be to that question? So we often talk about strategies and action plans and they kind of go quite hand in hand so a strategy can be thought of of kind of your roadmap for how you're going to achieve your long-term goals and objectives so your strategy should guide your decision making and give you clarity on what your priorities are without a vision without a strategy you basically just have a to-do list Um, so like loads of jigsaw pieces and no idea about how you put a jigsaw together and no picture on the front of the box So you might still achieve things without a strategy, but that's a little bit more by luck rather than because you knew what you're aiming for. So, and then when you talk about EDI strategies specifically, I think it's a a really funny question because people kind of treat EDI like it's this mystical thing that's not like anything else they've ever seen in business, but it's not, it's just another business function. So it obviously has its own nuances and its own considerations, but it needs resource, it needs support from leadership, you need a vision, you need a strategy, you need objectives, you need targets. Um, And that's how we approach it at the ECB. So we're our own sort of little department, we've got our own budget, our own resource, and you have support from leadership, and that's absolutely key for driving progress and driving the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. And that kind of that support's really vital for me and for our team as we kind of go forward trying to tackle discrimination, trying to make the sport more inclusive, having that commitment of funding, having that support from leadership in terms of decision making. Um, I firmly believe that anything you care about achieving requires a strategy. Um, If you want to drive change, you need a strategy because you need to get a way to get to the future that that you want to see happen. So from an organizational perspective, I guess you, you, if you want your organization to reflect the communities you serve, which is a thing we talk a lot about, if you want to have a welcoming culture where people feel valued, they feel respected for the unique perspectives that they bring, you need a strategy to get there. Those things don't happen by chance, really. Um, The kind of key point I want to make around EDI strategies, though, is that having a strategy in isolation won't get you there. If it's a document that sits on a shelf and isn't living and isn't breathing, it's pretty pointless. So you kind of view your your need for an EDI strategy is it's a tool to get you to a a kind of an outcome that you that you want to achieve. And alongside that, you've got to look at your culture and you've got to look at your values are the business decisions you're taking reflecting your commitment to EDI are you living your values do you encourage and reward behavior from your staff that is aligned to those values and if you have both of those things then you can achieve real change in terms of how included people feel in the organization or how equitable your sport or or your whatever industry you're in but for me how equitable your sport is how diverse your sport is so the strategy is is you need a strategy if you want to drive change what about you rishi how did you identify the need for a strategy at your organization um so when i started lfc we had the strategy already uh, and it was it was great it served its purpose however i suppose after the murder of george floyd and this huge moment from a 
from a global perspective, not just in the US, but it's global, it affected everyone and anyone. I sort of looked at that and thought, how can we move as an organisation into doing what we we need to do into what we should be doing? And they're two very, very different things. What we need to do, I sort of see, is more around the compliance-based stuff, and you have to do that. It has to be the foundation of what you do. However, our strategy and our approach now, using the data that we have in terms of under-representation of our supporters, under-representation of staff, the key topics and areas in wider society and football, has allowed us to develop our strategy and actually go, what do we stand for as a football club? What do we believe in? Um, what are the key areas and objectives that we want to focus upon? And then really importantly is how are we going to get there? And then even more importantly is how are we going to measure impact and demonstrate that impact? Because I suppose that's where the data comes in. For me, that the data underpins the need for the strategy or the data is, is essential to building that strategy. You can... You can have these ideas in your head and you sort of, I was sort of went into that exercise thinking, yeah, yeah, I know pretty much what this is going to look like in my head. However, the data is essential to make sure that we are doing things for the right reason. You can have these fantastic plans and strategies in place, but actually if it's not needed or there's no impact to be shown off the back of it, then you question, is that really the right thing for us to do? Um, and that's why data is a really key thing when you are building up those strategies. How do you kind of kickstart that process? To be honest, having worked in this space for such a long time, you obviously carry bits of knowledge, you carry best practice from your previous roles, you, you carry things that you, you should have done better, lessons learned, etc. For, for me, I'm a, I'm a big believer in sort of seeing what's out there um, in the big wide world and not always, to be honest, in my own industry in football or even in sports. I think that what the beauty of working for Liverpool Football Club and for such a big global brand is that it's, it's very much striking that balance of it's not necessarily against always going, how do we be the leading football club? It's how can you be rubbing, be shoulder to shoulder with the leading organisations, the big blue chips, the ones who people really aspire to. And actually, you can look at their strategies and activities that happen and go, actually, this bit would really work well in my organisation, but I'm just going to tweak it to this. For me, that that's where I found success in the past. Um, is seeing what's out there, seeing what's best practice, listening to industry leaders and people who were trailblazing and pioneers and all these individuals who were doing fantastic work and taking these little nuggets of information from them and going, right, how can I take that learning and translate that into my business and make sure that it, it's relevant for me, relevant for my people, relevant for our supporters, relevant for our stakeholders. And for me, that's a sort of key to success when you are developing your own strategy for your own organisation. Speaking of best practice, how does this differ working for a team versus another type of sports organisation? So say a governing body like the ECB. To be honest, I wouldn't say it's, it's vastly different. Best practice, I think best practice is what you determine best practice to be. Um, I speak to many counterparts and other clubs and the work that they're doing is absolutely fantastic and we learn from each other on a, on a regular basis. They'll learn from me, hopefully, from some of the work that we're doing and it works really well. Um there's always ways that you can adapt the work that some. I always feel there's always ways that you can adapt the work that someone else is doing to make it fit for your organisation. Um, so whether you are a sports team, one of the authorities, one of a big NGO, or a, or on a smaller level, or a charity, I think there's always pockets of information that you can grab from others, make them fit for purpose for yourself, make them work for your own organisation, and then go out there and make it really land, um, both internally and externally. I think that the key thing for me and any work that I've done is, is ensuring that 
when when we are delivering these strategies that they're they're all encompassing. It's not solely right, this is how we're gonna focus on our people. And the separate strategy to look at how we're gonna focus on our external supporters and stakeholders, our red together strategy, which is our overarching EDI strategy, it encompasses everything. Um, it's got sort of four pillars to it, two internal, two external, because actually it has to be a concerted, coordinated effort to advance equality, diversity, inclusion across our entire football club. And that isn't just for our people, it's all for our supporters, for our stakeholders, for our partners, for our communities. So when we're going out to deliver key events, key campaigns as part of the strategy, you've got a, a really coordinated approach. You've got internal work and internal networks, learning opportunities, etc. You've got a, a global campaign um, for some of the big campaigns that we work on. And then you've got the LFC Foundation doing fantastic work in the local community across the city region. But all three of those sort of those areas are all pulling in the same direction for the same reason and is a really good, strong, strategic way to deliver impactful campaigns and impactful results and really importantly address some of the issues that you really want to address. The Leaders Sports Awards are in October, part of Leaders Week London, but the time is now to get your entries in and to be in with a chance of lifting a prestigious Leaders Sports Award at the Natural History Museum later this year. Company categories and Leaders Under 40 nominations are open until Friday the 31st of March. All the information you'll need is available in our nominations guide. You can download that now and check out all of the categories, plus last year's winners, at leadersinsport.com forward slash LSA. So moving on, we have talked about identifying why you need EDI strategy and some of the common questions we should come into thinking. So let's take it up a notch. You've kind of assessed and come to the idea that, cool, we're going to go forward with this. And I think that the next step, which normally comes into place is when you present the case, when you kind of assess where to begin. And I think normally at this stage, it's normally a case of who do you now bring to the conversation? I think you want to focus on getting buy-in from the top. And like, that's absolutely essential. And it's such a buzzword phrase, but it is absolutely key whether that's because it allows you to access resource and resource can be money it can be time it can be people but also your leadership are your ultimate decision makers and one of the things that we talk about quite a bit in the edi space is the say do gap so if your leaders say one thing and then take decisions that go against what they're saying if they say they're committed to uh, equity and then take a different decision that just goes against that you're, you're kind of stuffed really um, so start with getting that buy-in from the top and then in terms of how you present that case I think it was like having a conversation with someone about this today I think it's absolutely key that you tie your EDI strategy to your overall organizational strategy they shouldn't be two independent things so if I take the example of cricket we've got Inspiring Generations, which is our five-year strategy for cricket. And the ambition there is, it's quite simple, it's to inspire a generation to say that cricket is a game for me. Now, that's a strategy that's already got a core thread of inclusion running through it. If you want to inspire a whole generation, you've got to reach a whole different host of people. Our EDI strategy is then designed to underpin that. So it looks at some of the systems, the processes, the policies that might prevent us from achieving that ambition of everyone being able to say that cricket's a game for me. And the EDI strategy 
feeds into and builds and strengthens our core organisational strategy. That really helps with the buy-in. It becomes, EDI is kind of part of good business sense rather than it being something additional that you in inverted commas have to do um, or it's nice to have. And I think that's kind of where you get real accelerated change when EDI becomes part of how and why you do business rather than something that's purely just a moral case or purely just the right thing to do. Like obviously it's the right thing to do, but it's much more than that. It helps you grow your audiences. It helps you bring in the best talent to your business. It, it just, it, it should just be, for me, it's just, it's so obvious that it's just a core part of how you are successful in business. And you can sort of tell my background in sort of um, FTSE companies rather than in sport, but, but talking about like your customers and, and all of that, all of that for me is just underpinned by EDI. And I think, if you just, if your case is just, we should do this, or it's the right thing to do, that's not how business decisions are made. There's also diversity and inclusion and equity will help you bring in more money or help bring in new customers. It will help attract new people to your sport. It will mean you can hire better talent because you're looking in more diverse pools for it. So for me, it's just that that buy-in is, is tie it to your core business and what you're trying to achieve. Chris, would you like to expand a little bit on that bit around the business case? So how diversity benefits a business? We've been talking about this for such a long time, it feels like. And I think, you know, you're missing, you often you're missing a trick as a business because you only have to look at, um, you know, I've just got some notes here, but I think it's really important because the business case is, of course, crucial. And, but there's a moral imperative as well. But there's countless evidence that doing good work in EDI is better for your business, not just in terms of your bottom line, but in terms of decision-making. So like McKinsey have done three reports now on what good, you know, like what good EDI can deliver. And I was just looking at this earlier. Um, Their latest report shows not only the business case remains robust for EDI, but that the relationship between diversity on executive teams and the likelihood of financial outperformance has strengthened over time. So companies in the top quartile for gender diversity on executive teams are 25% more likely to have above average profitability than those in the fourth quartile. And that's gone up from their studies in 2014 and 2017, right? And interestingly, in the case of ethnic and cultural diversity, the business case findings are more, even more compelling, right? And that's something that we we talk about even less because it feel, I think it feels too threatening for whomever it is that's making those decisions, Right. In 2019, so that's four years ago now, so imagine what it looks like now, the top quartile companies outperformed those in the fourth by 36%. And it's crazy because when it comes to identifying the need for an EDI strategy, I've always positioned it as there's two lenses to which you have to view it from. It's one lens is, it's the general right thing, the human proposition of why you do this. And then there's also the other side where it has to speak to the business profitability and, and the bottom line. So when you're now at this planning stage of a strategy, what are some of the questions that you're, as a consultant, asking to the organisation or what questions should they be thinking about along the lines of why do we need the EDI strategy? Yeah, and I think you're you're right to pick up those two things in terms of like the moral imperative and the business imperative. And I think what you've got to look at is, you know, why do you need, you need, you'll need it if you don't have 
Well, there's a couple of things like it's to break down the ED and the I for starters, let's, right? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so in the first instance, I like, or I think, you know, we, we should talk about equity rather than equality. There's that classic thing of like, everyone should have shoes. Brilliant. Everyone has shoes is equality, but equity is giving everyone shoes that fit. Because you know what? You can run faster. You can, you can, you know, you're going to stay on your feet longer. You're going to do better work, whatever, if your shoes fit you. So I want to think about the shoes fitting rather than just making sure that everyone's got shoes, right? So that's the first thing is from the equity perspective. And that, again, if you think about it in terms of your business sense, if you give everyone shoes that fit them, they can go and do brilliant work. And that's what you're trying to do is like, it's your people that deliver you know, it's your people that are going to deliver the outcomes that are going to make you more money, deliver your impact objectives if you're a charity or whatever. So give them shoes that fit. That's the first thing. That's the equity. From a diversity perspective, it's like, guess what? If you just have the same people, like I've worked, I'm going to flip it on its head. And do you know what? I hate people that do this as well. And now I'm going to do it. It's terrible. <laughs> but like I've worked in, in organizations that are all women, which are brilliant. I love it, to be fair. Um, but sometimes you know that we're like, actually you could do with some a little bit of disruption in there because you know particularly if you're in a feminist organization you're trying to go and do feminist things we're all talking to each other and we all agree sometimes you might need something that's a little bit from the outside of that to to give us some some input onto what we're going to face when we're out there in the world for example so, that, so from group a, thinking yeah exactly so you get away from group think exactly and that's exactly and we know that in businesses you end up with at the top of the organization, mostly older, white, cisgendered men. And that's not good for business. We've seen it time, time and again. And But what, unfortunately what happens, I mean, this is slightly off topic now, but unfortunately what happens is rather than going, actually, we need to have this diversity in our boardrooms, in our teams, etc. what you have are often um, people who might feel threatened for themselves. But I would always make the case that actually this is a plus, not a minus. You know, I always sort of say like, when you're talking about equity, diversity and inclusion, it's not pie. There's enough to go around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, make a great business. You have more people doing more things. And the, and the reason why that diversity is important exactly for that is so you don't have group thing. And then from an inclusion perspective, well, we know that you have to create inclusive cultures. So if you do have a diverse workforce where you your culture was so inclusive, your teams were so diverse and everyone had the right shoes that we wouldn't have to be thinking about it. But whilst we are doing that, you need to have all of those things. So I like to ask difficult questions in a nice way. Right. Because I don't I don't ever want to make anyone feel uncomfortable because you won't get anything out of them. Right. But like, ask those difficult questions and just to try and understand what it is that's going on. The best thing I ever did in my career, honestly, I was talking about this earlier. I went on a course around active listening and it's around asking questions and then li really listening and honing in on like the one or two things that you need to just probe on a bit that are going to help you free someone from that situation. So I don't know what questions I'd ask. You tell me what the issue is in your business yeah. and then I'll ask you whatever I think the questions are and probe where I think you might be not sure about something, worried about something, hiding something and not in a way because I'm trying to catch you out because actually if you tease that stuff out, yeah. that's the stuff that actually means that we might get somewhere. Oh yeah, that, that's the substance, isn't it? Yeah. And um, it's, to your point on active listening and just to 
reference a, a quote from a, a wise colleague of mine, John Port. She always tells, tells me the same thing. Jav, you have two ears and one mouth. You should use in that ratio. And from that day, that literally has stuck with me. And I think if you approach every conversation with that in mind to an extent, you take away a lot more, which I think is when you learn the most. So in an industry where, of course, we're striving for something that can be seen as kind of idealistic, how do you set realistic annual quarterly targets? Uh, I, I think that's the eternal challenge. So you want to aim for ambitious and challenging, but possible and achievable. So, and also like in your priority areas, you might want to set a more ambitious target. So in a world where you've got finite resources, finite time, you can't do everything immediately. You might want to pick one or two areas where you set really ambitious stretching targets and other areas where you set ambitious targets, but they're not sort of so far out of reach that you're going to have to throw everything at them. Um, so there's a few ways that you can kind of reality check your ambition. So one is to use benchmarks. So look out there in the world, does anyone else measure this? What are they achieving? So if that, that might be inclusion scores or it might be diversity of the workforce, look at how other people are doing. And alongside that, then look at those other companies and, and often in the EDI space, someone has done it before. So how long did it take them to achieve what you're aiming to do? People think that they're tackling a challenge for the first time. There's not. You might need to look into different industries. You might need to look at banking or you might need to look at other sports or you might want to look at education. But different industries will have tackled challenges at different times in their history. So you can use that to say, what's a realistic time frame here for change? And then you can also look at progress that you yourself as an organization have made in the past. So what pace of change did you manage to achieve and how hard were you trying at that point in time to drive change so what's your like natural just as things tick along you get that level of improvement or did you put a lot of effort behind it for a couple of years to get a certain certain improvement so one of like i'll give you an example from cricket and it's this piece of work that i'm really proud of is our governance reform so we looked at the diversity of the boards across cricket in these sort of 50, 60 cricket organisations across England and Wales. And we've taken gender diversity from 11% to 33% and ethnic diversity from 5% to 17% in the space of three years, beating kind of both of our targets in that space. Now, when I tie that back to kind of how you reality check your ambition and your targets, there's been a lot of work in FTSE companies around board diversity and you can see the pace of change that they've achieved there. We could also look back and say, okay, well, over the previous three years before that, how much did our gender diversity and our ethnic diversity change? And we sort of looked at that and thought, okay, well, if we just carry on as we are, we're not going to hit those targets. So that then led us to go and start an initiative we, we partnered with an agency who specialize in in recruitment for boards and bringing in diverse talent and we put specific targeted plans in place to help us reach that target so it was we thought it was achievable we'd seen other organizations do it but also knew that if we didn't put specific focus behind it we wouldn't get there another thing you can do in terms of when you're looking at your targets is to make sure that you map your actions that you're gonna do within your EDI plan back to those objectives and those targets. So you should be able to say, 
I want to achieve 30% women in leadership and action A, B and C are going to help me get there. If you can't tie your actions to your targets, then there's no reason that you'd be able to hit your targets, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Um, I'm curious, just in your experience, is the pace of change steady or is it like bursts yeah. and then lulls and I think it really varies depending on what you're talking about so board diversity we saw you'd see flat and then you see peaks because most boards have AGMs around the same time so at a set point in the year previous non-exec directors would roll off the board and you'd bring in new directors. For example, people would complete their term limits or they'd decide to stand down. But those would typically happen at a particular point in the year. So we'd see it quite flat, quite flat, quite flat. And then suddenly in April, we'll see a massive spike. But you have to kind of know when those are happening to put the actions in place beforehand. Other things you might expect to see a more sort of steady growth if you're looking at like the diversity of your workforce that might be more steady because you hire all year round. So it's a really good point. It's really important to think about how and when you can move towards that target because some of it is just a steady movement all through the year. And other things, I don't know if you're running a major event and you're looking at the diversity of your ticket buyers. If that event only runs once a year, you've only got one chance to change the outcome there. So it's a bit of a mix you can look if you're doing like a five-year target you might want to put kind of um, markers in and say okay after year one two and three some things will pick up pace as you go so you might see a bit more kind of like exponential growth as something gets like women's football is really exploding in terms of popularity right now that's probably had a slow growth curve and then had a real kick because of a major event no pun intended yeah oh no that's great yeah no I'll I'll take credit for that pun in fact (laughs) um yeah so so you might but you will know that based on your understanding of your sport or your industry but it can be all kinds of the pace of change can be quite different but it's important to know whether the lack of movement should be concerning or not or whether you've whether actually that's what you would be expecting to happen. Yeah, so we, we have targets within our strategy. Um, we don't advertise them publicly because they're ever they're ever changing. They're always evolving. Um, and I think when sometimes when these targets are out there, it can be quite difficult to, to not sort of get hung up on them and really focus on them as the ultimate goal. And for me, we've got aspirational targets within our strategy. And I'm not just talking about demographics of the workforce, I'm talking about achievements and standards that we're working towards a benchmark etc if we don't get there then i'm okay with that but that's not a problem for me it's it's the but it won't be through a lack of effort it won't be through a lack of trying to reach that target so if if we're not there by the time what 2027 comes calling and that's the sort of the, the end of the five-year strategy we probably will have rewritten it by then anyway that's not a problem because we should be able to show clear progress in those work streams or there will be a reason a real genuine reason as to why we haven't achieved them but we will have moved in the right direction i've always got that confidence that we will have um as an organization because that that's that's my role it's what i'm there for but also it's because i've got the unequivocal and unwavering support of my colleagues 
um, and our wider supporter base in terms of what we're trying to achieve here. Chris? The other thing I would say is, is don't make it a side project. You know, it's like, it's got to be, and we, you know, as what I was saying earlier, it's like, it's got to be a core piece of your strategy that everybody cares about, even if they're not working on it. I'd want to see, you know, like in your board meeting, a report on it and ev- not just the person who's the champion, your senior champion talking about it. The others should be asking questions and, and you know, and being ready to, and I think this is really important, being ready for it to be, can I swear? Being ready for it to be a shit show. Yeah. Right. Because actually I think that's really important because the minute like you go, oh no, this is going down the wrong track. We better save it because I don't want this to be on a report or for anyone to think this or whatever. You've, you're done because then that means that you're not properly addressing what the issues are. And if you're not, you end up with stuff that's on the surface where you're not really going to make the change. So you're not going to have the real business benefit from it. And you're not going to create a culture in which you really have employees that can really operate to their best. And that's the thing. It's like you see any organisations that try and cover up any um, kind of instances of racism, misogyny, homophobia in their workplaces. It's like, no, the best ones, and this is this should be baked into your EDI strategy, mm-hmm. the best ones are the ones that are like, not only are we monitor not only are we monitoring like numbers around this stuff, we're monitoring what the outcomes are. And that actually resolving something so we're not saying, oh no, it's really bad that we've got had six counts six um complaints about some discrimination, right? You can imagine how some, you know, organisations are like, oh no, we can't have six. Let's see if we can call that one something else and we'll only have three. No, I want to see 12. But I want I want to see a 12 where you've had proper outcomes. Yeah. And because, do you know what? Once you've had 12 proper outcomes, you, you're already setting the tone for what you want your culture to be. One thing that I definitely want to touch upon that you mentioned is in the doing of this, I think what also needs to be realised is this all now means that numbers inform your actions. And more on that in our next episode, where we will be talking about implementation and action. For now, thank you, Chris, Kate and Rishi. And that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you all for listening. And to our diversity series partners, Meta, Prime Video, IMG, Wasserman, Nielsen, Team Marketing and Delta Trade for helping us to bring to you the leaders in their podcasts. We'll see you for the next one.